You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. Coming up later, we'll talk about how payers are investing in social needs, both at scale and across a variety of communities. It's not a secret to the healthcare industry that social factors account for a significant portion of a person's overall health. So what can be done about it? We'll talk about that later. But first up, let's talk about artificial intelligence in healthcare. While there has been a lot of hype about AI radically transforming healthcare, adoption has been slower and more measured than previously predicted. Instead of replacing doctors, clinicians are using AI as a tool to improve everything from their diagnoses to billing practices. There's also a lot of cash pouring into the sector. Last year, healthcare AI startups raised $12.4 billion. That's nearly double from the previous year. But there are some concerns, and the use and control of patient medical data is a big one. You see, in order for AI to work, it needs to be able to analyze large amounts of data. Then it can do things like analyze scans and improve the accuracy of a diagnosis. But using patient data clearly raises concerns about privacy. Fierce's senior editor, Heather Landy, wanted to find out more about AI, like real-world examples of how AI is helping patients, and maybe what's standing in the way of its more widespread use. And what organizations should be doing to protect patient data. So she reached out to Dr. John Halamka, who leads Mayo Clinic's Digital Health and AI Projects. And here's how it went. Hi, Dr. Halamka. Thank you so much for joining me today. What a pleasure to be here. So there's a lot of hype around artificial intelligence in, in healthcare, as, as I'm sure you know. And there's also a lot of money going into AI startups. Investors poured about $12.4 billion into healthcare AI startups last year. But I'd like to talk to you about how AI is helping patients in real life. In a previous interview with me, you talked about your wife's breast cancer diagnosis back in 2011, and you mentioned how more advanced AI algorithms might have predicted her diagnosis earlier. Can you give me some real-world examples of how AI has helped patients? Well, Absolutely. I realize that machine learning is kind of a subset of AI, but machine learning is math, not magic. And so what is the notion here? We can look at the data of the past and say something about the current patients we have or even predict diseases and patients that don't have a diagnosis yet. And so in the field of cardiology, neurology, oncology, radiology, radiation oncology, Mayo Clinic is creating these models, these validated algorithms that augment human decision-making. And so let me give you some examples. Suppose that you have a failing heart pump and congestive heart failure, this happens, and sometimes even young people have cardiac myopathies that result in a failing heart pump. Well, it typically takes an expert using an echo to determine that you have a failing heart pump. AI, in effect, using a machine learning algorithm, can detect that from your Apple Watch lead one single ECG sent from the Apple Health Record. Uh, Or whether you have a Fitbit or Samsung or other wearable, we can start to detect and predict disease from simple body sensors. And these are patterns that 
humans can't see, but the machine learning algorithms can. So I think you're going to see more and more of this deployed in actual healthcare to providers and to patients to help us guide your healthcare, getting you the right treatment at the right time in the right place. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you jumped over to Mayo Clinic about three years ago in 2019 to lead digital health and artificial intelligence projects. Most of the advances currently made by clinical AI are coming from innovative healthcare institutions like Mayo. What excites you most about the work you're doing right now? Well, there's so many things. (laughs) To create these AI models, you need a lot of data. You need multimodal data. At Mayo Clinic has 10 million longitudinal birth to death records that we've identified that have structured and unstructured data, telemetry, genomics, digital pathology, and images. So I think what's most exciting is this notion that we can start to look at beyond just the electronic health record information, but this sort of notion of multimodal, multi-signal inputs. And let me give you a concrete example. My father, who died 10 years ago, had multiple sclerosis. He was given every medication at the time to treat multiple sclerosis, but there was no notion of a feedback loop. Well, did this medication help him walk more? Was his pain reduced? Did he have more flexibility? Well, as we start to look at 2022 and beyond, we recognize, oh, we can actually measure walking because you have a phone. (laughs) We can start to measure pain because you have a patient report of outcome app on your phone. We can start to ask questions about flexibility. You know, sometimes there are people who have devices in the home that actually are providing physical therapy on your television using some kind of digital appliance. So all this data, this multimodal data will enable us to get better care to our patients and adjust that care as we get feedback from these novel data sources. Right. Yeah. Um, You mentioned patient data, and I kind of want to touch on that um, in a bit. But, you know, talking about the clinical uses, last year, your team at Mayo launched a platform to help doctors make faster and more accurate diagnosis using remote monitoring data paired with AI. I read a quote where you said the goal was to, quote unquote, stop diseases in patients before they emerge. How close is the healthcare industry to achieving that? When you get very large data sets and you create models, Your capacity to predict is very good. I think a challenge we have, a couple of things. Workflow. How do we integrate these new tools into the day-to-day workflow of our clinicians? Mm -hmm. How do we monitor them to make sure they're working well and that they're adapted over time as there's what we call data shift? You know, it may be a nature in the change of patient disease. I mean, who would have predicted COVID, for example? And, And so... I have, with a number of other colleagues, launched something called the Coalition for Healthcare AI to create the best practices for putting these machine learning algorithms into practice in direct patient care so we can predict disease that hasn't even yet occurred. Now, what are still some of the biggest barriers to using AI in healthcare just in in, in a real world setting? You know, how far away are we from, you know, just the average primary care doctor? using AI in their practices? So let me uh, tell you about a few barriers. Mm -hmm. Certainly one barrier is I believe that healthcare AI has a credibility problem. And that means we haven't been very transparent about how an algorithm works. Is it causality or correlation? 
Uh, I mean, I'm going to tell you a very amusing example. A not healthcare person looked at healthcare data and said, hey, I've noticed that if you give high doses of morphine, your readmission rates tend to go down. Oh, by the way, what's a palliative care unit? <laughs> and so you understand that just having a biostatistician working on the data may create a model that is very uncredible. <laughs> and so we need to be able to say, what are the inputs? What are the outputs? What are the performance characteristics? How did we validate it? But you also heard me describe about the need for workflow integration. Here we are in the great resignation or the great realignment of the post-COVID new normal. Doctors are burdened. Doctors are tired. You're seeing huge amounts of burnout in all healthcare professionals. Adding change? Well, there's change fatigue. The interesting question is, how do we create AI algorithms that help you and reduce your burden, not add to that cognitive effort of every day? that's still a work in process. Okay, right. Yeah, it's, you know, obviously going to be important to address those ethical issues and transparency in the use of AI and, and machine learning going forward. So it's really interesting to hear about the work that your that coalition is doing. So as exciting as all this sounds, you know, people have a lot of concerns about the privacy of their health data. Back in 2019, Mayo Clinic inked a 10-year strategic partnership with Google to use tech giant's cloud computing tech and to store patient data in the cloud. As healthcare becomes more digitized, what reassurances do we as patients have about the widespread use of our medical information? Well, that's a really important question. So first, it has to start with transparency and consent. What are we going to do with data that is collected? How are we going to protect your privacy? Mayo, over the course of these last two years, has developed something we call data behind glass. And that means Google stores the data, but has no independent access to the data. The data is de-identified using a next generation, sophisticated method of natural language processing that we call hiding in plain sight. So the idea of de-identification for us is find every proper noun, geography, familial relationship, or job role, and subtly change them in a way that makes it harder to re-identify and put them in a closed container that never leaves Mayo Clinic, and audit everything. And that is the promise to our patients, that your data will never leave the control of Mayo Clinic or in any way compromise privacy. Right. And just to follow up on that, I mean, technology is evolving so quickly. Do you think that health systems and hospitals are doing a good enough job of, of you know, explaining to patients how they're using their data and everything you just described in terms of how, you know, patient data is de-identified. So privacy and security is not a project. It's a process and you will never be done. Right. right? To your point, a lot of today's encryption could break. So we better start putting into place protections that assume five years from now that we're going to have quantum computing. Interestingly enough, Mayo Clinic has done that. Uh, so we've partnered with a number of companies to create quantum computing proof privacy exchanges. So I, mean, I think the answer to your question is, of course, no one has done a good job and it, the work will never be done. OK, yeah, it sounds like you Mayo know, Clinic is doing a lot of industry leading innovative work there to kind of, you know, lead the field in this area. 
And I just want to shift a little bit just to talk about what we've seen in the past two years, this enormous shift to virtual care and digital health and the acceleration of digital health during the COVID-19 pandemic. You've mentioned that the pandemic accelerated the transition to virtual care by about a decade. How do you see virtual care and digital health evolving from here? The most important change, I would argue, is culture. And during the pandemic, we all started to work remotely. We started to see our doctors remotely. We started to use more digital tools. So today, we have an expectation that those will be available. My 80-year-old mother had not touched a keyboard before the pandemic. And today says, why would I ever want to go back to the office when I can get the care I need using devices in my home? So it's that change that is the most profound. Yeah, definitely. Um, Telehealth has become a word and a a concept that um, the average person understands now. It used to be something that only healthcare would talk about. What do you see AI machine learning um, making the most headway in healthcare? Is it more in clinical use or more in kind of back-end administrative uses? We talked about burden. We talked about the great resignation, not having enough specialists and professionals to see the patients who need their knowledge. What you hope is that you can instantiate the knowledge of the world's best experts and algorithms so we can democratize the access to high quality care, regardless of geography. And one example I'll give you there is our work in radiation oncology. You mentioned my wife was a breast cancer patient doing fine today. But she had to have radiation therapy delivered to a tumor in such a way that it didn't impact the nerves, arteries, and veins near that tumor. Mayo Clinic has developed an algorithm that enables computing to determine the most optimal physics, the most optimal radiation delivery for head and neck tumors. It used to take a human 16 hours to do what an algorithm can now do in less than one hour. So what does that mean? It means our radiation oncologists can spend more time listening to patients, being empathetic with patients, interacting with the staff, and less time on the computational functions. Of course, they check and balance all the algorithm outputs, but it's this burden reduction, this shift so that clinicians can practice at the top of their license that I think is going to be our first major deployment of AI. Yeah, definitely. It'll be exciting to see how it all evolves um, in my lifetime as well. So I have to ask you about your farm in Massachusetts. You and your wife run Unity Farm, which is dedicated to rescue farm animals. So as a tech expert, have you incorporated AI into farming as well? Well, it's a little (laughs) interesting and not the question I expected you to ask. But at Unity Farm Sanctuary in Sherborne, Massachusetts, which I encourage all your listeners to visit, We have 143 Internet of Things connected devices on a 12-node Google Mesh network where 100% of the telemetry on lights, locks, temperature, water flows is Google Cloud-based. So to to your question, we are in fact doing much of the management of 300 animals using a cloud-based infrastructure that is algorithm enhanced. I love that. And I personally love checking out the webcams um, from Unity Farm. It's kind of nice just to kind of take a break and, you know, check out what your cows are doing. (laughs) Well, and of course, cows, for those who haven't experienced cows, (laughs) just imagine a 3,000 pound dog. 
<laughs> and uh, so we have Elliot, who is uh, a, a, a Jersey, and he stands on my shoulders, which is great, except he weighs 2,000 pounds. <laughs> well, um, I will definitely be keeping track of your work at Mayo Clinic, and I'll also be checking in on Unity Farm from time to time. But Dr. Halamka, thanks so much for your time today. It was really interesting to chat with you. Well, hey, and thanks so much. That was Dr. John Halamka and Heather Landy. Next up, we're going to talk about how payers are investing in social needs. But before we continue with our next guest, I have an announcement. Coming up on October 12th is a free virtual event that you won't want to miss, the Fierce Health Payer Summit. As health plans continue to grow, a key target has emerged, Medicare Advantage. Because of the market's rapid growth, insurers are investing more in elderly people. At the summit, You'll hear from industry experts and top executives on the lessons they're learning. Just visit FierceHealthPayerSummit.com or check out the show notes. All right, and now for our next guest. Poverty, racism, unequal access to health care, lack of education. These are all social factors which account for a significant portion of a person's overall health. And healthcare industry insiders know this. So with that in mind, payers have invested significantly in bringing on the expertise necessary to tackle these social needs, both at scale and across a wide variety of communities. At United Healthcare, that work is led by Dr. Alex Biu, who joined the company from Louisiana's Department of Health, where he led the state's response to COVID-19. Dr. Alex Biu sat down with Fierce Healthcare's senior editor, Paige Minnemeyer, to discuss how payers can address social needs and really make a difference in these challenges that are highly individualized. Glad to have you join us. You stepped into your role at United Healthcare in, in the middle of the pandemic after leading Louisiana's public health response to COVID. What was that transition like for you? And what were maybe some lessons that you were able to take from that experience in Louisiana that you were that you brought to United? Yeah, well, it was it was uh, certainly a, a great opportunity for a change of pace. I'll say, um, leading a, a pandemic response, especially in the early days, um, and in a state as as hard hit as uh, Louisiana was, uh, you know, early in the pandemic, um, was certainly challenging. Um, but but for me, there were just uh, strong themes um, of you know health equity, social need, really underlying um, the the damage, frankly, that we saw from COVID. Uh, and so the opportunity to join United Healthcare, where the scope and span was was broader than than a single state, um, and the work was really focused on on digging deeper on the impact of social needs, not just on something like a pandemic, but but on overall uh, health, um, was was just too tempting to to turn down. And and it's been a fantastic journey so far. United Healthcare is the the largest private insurer in the country, of tens of millions of members, kind of under your purview. Um, but, you know, social needs and social health are, are local. I mean, how are you thinking about kind of using the scale that United has to tackle those issues while also thinking about them in kind of an individual and community level way? Part of where we are right now um, with the level of social need is really symptomatic of a disconnect um, for people with their communities or for resources in their communities. Um, some of that has been directly driven by, you know, systems of discrimination that have acted to uh, really disconnect and break up uh, communities or under-resource them. 
And so I think our approach to that has to be one where we try to reconnect people into their communities, that we do the harder work of finding that resource that um, is maybe a, a local food pantry and, and not, you know, um, uh, just a, 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 you know, a food delivery service that can be scaled. And so then the challenge for us is, is scaling that. And I think that's where we focus really on, on our framework. Um, you know, what are the kinds of uh, resources we want to find? What are the ways that we identify partners? How do we partner with those local community resources? And importantly, in an organization like United Healthcare, we really leverage the on-the-ground market teams that know these communities, have been working with these communities for years, and really have their finger on the pulse of not just maybe what the needs are, but but who are our, our you know closest partners in trying to address these needs. And the last thing that we bring beyond that framework to the table, I think, is really a, an important um, infrastructure in managing lots of data, because I think the the opposite risk exists for something this local that you can end up fighting the same battles or seeing the same challenges in community after community. But if you're not really comprehensively gathering data about how you're doing, where you're successful, why you're successful in those communities, and then trying to extrapolate that or, or, or analyze that at a, at a national level to really guide strategy, um, I think we run the risk of really you know, repeating mistakes over and over again in communities across the country. You mentioned you know community partnerships and relationships that way. Certainly, a plan of, of United Healthcare size can can um, contract with many, many, many providers across the country. How critical do you view them as a as a partner in getting at these social determinants of health, and how do you kind of lean on them to to connect with patients? I mean, I think they're the key partner in delivering um, the resources that our members need uh, to to stay healthy, um, uh, to get healthy again. Um, where 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 that applies. Um, so I think right now we lean very heavily on them, and and that's why I think we also feel a deep duty to um, support them uh, beyond just connecting our members to them. We just announced recently another eleven million dollars in empowering health grants um, to communities across the country, um, and and that's part of that strategy. Really saying how do we inject resources into these areas um, where we know they have the most need and into the areas uh, into the organizations which we think will have the biggest impact. When I talk to executives in the industry about this, um, trust comes up all the time as kind of the key to to getting at these issues. How are you thinking about breaking down that barrier from a health plan perspective? And again, how how are those partners kind of key to to building that relationship? Yeah, well, I'm I'm a um, internal medicine, you know, primary care doc. And so I, I believe strongly that trust is built um, uh, on an individual basis, at least initially. And it has to do with, um, you know, putting action behind your words. So that's the approach that we take. We, we call it leading with help. We first want to reach out to folks um, just to identify their need uh, or where they're reaching out to us. We really want to make sure we're, we're asking about these broader questions of social needs that are unmet. And then we want to make good on helping address them. Uh, and for us, that means not just going to here's an organization that you know is in your community and might be able to help, but following back up with that number um, uh, at really you know high rates of, of follow up and uh, ensuring that if that referral didn't work, if it wasn't the appropriate resource, if if the resource was already tapped out for whatever reason, if it didn't work, we then you know keep working with that that member uh, to find other resources. Um, until either we've exhausted them or, or, you know, exhausted the resources, hopefully not the member, um, or the need is met. Um, and I think then we have 
uh, built some really important trust based off of um, delivering on what we said and, and putting our money with our, where our mouth is, as it were. Data and kind of analytics have come up a couple of times now in the conversation. Um, if again, from the health plan perspective, for an, for an insurer maybe that's a little farther behind United Health on this journey, I mean, where do they need to start, and is it with that kind of data and analytics at their at their fingertips? Yeah, I think I think we just need to bring the same rigor to this work uh, as we do to the way we approach physical care and behavioral health care. That's certainly the approach UHC is taking. But I think um, in the early days of work in social care, uh, and you know, prior to joining UHC, I was seeing this from the public seat. Um, I think um, for some organizations, this was seen as you know a social responsibility um, play. You know, this was really about. Um, we think that this is a popular action to take. Um, let's let's um, you know make these you know un- understand what, what needs are dry are are being identified in some of maybe our most vulnerable members. Make referrals, um, but but we hope those referrals land. We're not sure, and, and I think that the approach we take is to say we need to understand every step of that process. We need to understand who's the member. How did we identify the need? What is that need? How does that need fit with other needs in their community? Where did we send that member for uh, their care? Um, and importantly, once we sent that referral, what was the outcome? And I, I think there's there's probably not enough emphasis on really tracking down the level of, you know, actually having met that need and then being able to understand what the impacts of that work were. And, you know, that's using technology kind of on the, on the, the internal side, but, you know, on the patient-facing side as well, virtual care and telehealth have been kind of critical coming out of COVID. I mean, where do you see those fitting in into a a plan to address some of these social determinants of health? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is another uh, very big emphasis for our team. Um, We like to talk about uh, the digital divide. Uh, Really, you know, the challenge that people face, especially the populations that we're trying to reach in having access to the internet or where they have access to the internet understanding how to use that access. And so um, we really do think about it in those in those two spaces. So there's this great opportunity, as you talk about, with virtual care, reaching people in the way that they want to be reached at the time they need to be reached with the right resources. But that's all predicated on the idea that you have access to reliable broadband and you understand how to use um, the, the technology that you have at your, at your fingertips. So that's an area that we're really um, engaging deeply in right now. One, even just screening our members to understand, um, do they have access to the internet? Are they using the internet? Uh, and then two, deploying um, programs that um, really try to address both of those challenges, both the, you know, the technology uh, device and internet access issue, but then the digital literacy part of this, which I think is so critical uh, to ensuring that as the rest of our field moves forward with, I think, a very positive advance towards um, you know, more tech enablement that, that supports care at the right time in the right place, ensuring we don't worsen disparities and leave an entire group of people behind because they just don't have that access and connectivity and, and fluency. And, as, and, you know, kind of bringing it back to the, the trust point we were talking about earlier, I mean, do you have to craft messaging differently for, for the patient when you're thinking about interacting with them in a virtual way to target these issues rather than kind of in a face-to-face traditional setting? I think so. I, I think that again, um, regardless of the, regardless of the setting, I think it's important to start with you know what are the members' needs uh, and priorities first, um, and and really tackling those things, showing good faith uh, on those uh, on those priorities. Um, 
<clears throat> I think I think that is that is key to building trust in in any in any um, outreach uh, where you come at it with, hey, I've got one more thing I need you to do. I think our inboxes are full of those, um, but we get really high rates of engagement because we're really coming at it from the standpoint of how can we help? We actually know there are many things beyond your clinical care that have a, an impact on your health. We care about those things too, and frankly, we have the resources to help you with those problems. Let us know if those things are going on for you because we want to help and we've got all these resources and tools we can bring to bear. And whether that's being delivered by live voice or an app or you know a web a web page that you're engaging with, I think I think that's the right tone and message. Those have been kind of the two key topics coming out of COVID, you know, kind of the explosion in, in virtual care as well as social determinants of health inequity. I mean, are you feeling that momentum behind the behind this uh, social work? on your team and maybe how are you harnessing that as you kind of drive forward to tackle these issues? Yeah, I think there certainly is momentum. I think growing awareness from all directions uh, and now, you know, employers as well um, saying this is this is something that's a priority for us because we know the impact that this has on our workforce. And, and I think we're in a really unique point with you know, record low unemployment and yet large uh, groups of people, you know, lots of, lots of open uh, positions still out there, companies still trying to Identify how can we, um, you know, uh, recruit and maintain um, and retain rather, you know, the the best workforce, um, and recognizing the direct impact that health has on their on their populations and their their employees, and I think that really sets us up nicely for for showing that this is an area that a company like UHC has been making deep investments in for a while, and that we can help serve those holistic needs. Um, that um, uh, will support, supplement, integrate with what we already do with physical care and behavioral health care to have social care as really a third pillar um, that that really gets us to that whole person care that that we want to deliver. Do you think there's a risk that maybe the conversation around social needs and equity could kind of back off now that we're you know beginning to emerge from this the the COVID scenario? I think for the for the overall uh, industry as a whole, I think that that could be a risk. I'll say that I, I don't think that that's going to be the case um, in United Healthcare because again, I think we've seen that when you make the deeper investments, the returns are also deeper, and the returns are not just you know uh, monetary; they're on um, uh, members who who want to stay with us, uh, members who see us as um, key partners in um, you know helping them prioritize or achieve their health priorities. And so I think if you're taking that deeper approach, um, uh, this is really about a drive towards um, you know, consumer-focused care uh, and enabling that. It just so happens that, that one of the key areas that maybe we haven't had as much outreach into or, or outreach in in the past, and now we have a lot more, is what's going on outside of those clinic walls um, and, and what's going on in your home that, um, frankly, we can also help with. Um, so, so I think for those those who do let it um, let the pandemic uh, hopefully waning uh, impact their their interest in the space, I think that's a losing gambit um, uh, because I think that um, what COVID unveiled uh, is a long term standing trend, especially when we talk about the impacts of systems of discrimination like racism. There have been health disparities for a long time. We've now been able to put those front and center on the front page of newspapers and on on the nightly news. Um, but but we can't um, now turn our eyes away from the need to address those challenges, uh, and that's going to benefit everybody. Great. Well, thank you again for for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you. That was Dr. Alex Bue with Paige Minnemeyer. 
Thank you for listening to Podnosis. And if you love the show, please check out our other podcast, The Top Line, produced by Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. It comes out every Friday morning, and it was recently honored by the Folio Awards as a finalist and honorable mention for the best B2B podcast. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And since we're still a new podcast, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review and listen to us every Wednesday. We've got more great stuff to come. So just ask your smart speaker to play Podnosis. Podnosis.